Need to make a call? Look for a police call box. That's where you'll find Two on Who, the new Doctor Who podcast from Electric Surge. Two on Who is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark Altman. I'm here with your 430 movie hosts. Steve Melching. Darren Dockerman. Ashley Miller. And if you enjoy listening to the 430 movie, you'll love watching us on Electric Now. Electric Now is available on Stir, Zumo, and Distro TV apps and coming soon to the Electric Now app. So check us out, and it doesn't have to be 4.30. Any time of the day, we'll be there. Hey, if you want to watch a great podcast that none of us are on, check out Best Movies Never Made, available every other Monday from screenwriter Josh Miller and producer Steven Scarlatta as they go behind the scenes of some of the greatest movies never made with fantastic guests like... Steve Melching. Ashley Miller. And a lot of other people you have heard of. And not Darren Docterman. Yet. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you'll be on the show. They just invited me to be on an episode about James Bond. I wonder why. Maybe it's because I have a new book out called Nobody Does It Better, The Oral History of James Bond, available now wherever you get your books. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And we are thrilled to invite you to a live virtual screening of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Live. Live. It's live. It's going out now. Transmit now. No, it's not actually going out now. It's going out on Saturday, April 25th at 5 p.m. Pacific time. Thank you. Pacific time, indeed. Uh, Stargate. I don't know. (laughs) I don't remember the (laughs) Stargate. But this exclusive screening of Star Trek II, The Rathacon, produced in association with Paramount Pictures, will be a full-length audio commentary followed by Q&A with Darren and I as we tell stories from behind the scenes of Rathacon as well as our own personal stories. And we want to hear yours as you experience Rathacon for the first time in 1982. It'll and be, maybe uh, a goofy voice or two. Maybe. Although Gene didn't have much to do with Star Trek II, so I don't know if Gene Well, I be... think we'll be hearing about that, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun. We're really excited about this, and we look forward to you joining us on Saturday, April 25th at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on Sea Alive using your Google Chrome browser to join us for an exclusive screening of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and find out what it's like to be buried alive. Buried, buried alive. Buried alive. Mark! See you on April 25th. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And welcome back to the John H. Gill Memorial Podcasting Studio here in downtown Los Angeles. This is the 22nd century, the land renewed, the air and water pure again. The conflicts of the past are gone. It is a new earth, new peoples and new customs. In some places, bizarre savagery. In others, advanced cities. Everywhere, new challenge and new adventure. And this is also the story of Dylan Hunt, lost in 1979 in a suspended animation accident. Over a century and a half later, in the year 2133, he was found and awakened by the people of this city called Pax, Peace. The one place on Earth which escaped the final conflict of the 20th century. The one place on Earth where civilization did not perish. Dylan Hunt is one of them now, 
leader of a PAX science team exploring a much-changed world. Part of the PAX dream of rebuilding on Earth a new and wiser civilization. Their mission is mankind. Rebirth of planet Earth. some great guests for you. It's going to be a fun episode. Um, first, returning champion, uh, Mr. Ashley Miller. You know him as the writer for such movies as Thor and X-Men First Class, also producer, writer on uh, Fringe and Terminator the Sarah Connor Chronicles and Black Sails and the upcoming secret project at Netflix that we can't talk about. Thank you for having me, Mark. Yeah, you're well, We're just hoping you'll tell us what the secret project is. Someday, and <laughs> sometimes it seems like that day may never come. Uh, I will. I promise. You'll be the first to know. Well, you you never tell us because you know you know you may not invite you back once That's we right. get the information out of <laughs> That's you. That's right. That's not true. We know what it is. So, uh, <laughs> and, and joining us today to talk about uh, life post trek for uh, uh, the great Dream Ronberry is uh, author extraordinaire, Mr. Mark Cushman. Mark is the author of the four book series, soon to be five book series. These are the voyages. There's also a new audio book out of uh, season one. And um, we're thrilled to have Mark with us today. Mark, welcome to the show. Hello, Mark. Great to be here. <laughs> Good to see you. Last time we saw you was in Vegas, uh, where you were uh, hawking books. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, look, I'm a huge fan, as Mark knows, of the, this book series. And uh, I guess it was a couple months ago that the latest uh, installment came out, another whopping tome. Yeah, I think, what is it, 800 pages? 800 pages. I haven't read it. You have. <laughs> you haven't read it. <laughs> but um, what's great is it covers the animated series, and it, which is undergoing a bit of a renaissance because there's another book out about the animated series. Um, what, what is it? Aaron Harvey yes. has a book out, yes. uh, which is um, which is, is fun. But it's, it's, it's one of these licensed books, so they have a lot of great art right. and everything, and, and, and it was nice. And then, of course, you go into sort of a deep dive uh, onto mm-hmm. the animated series. But more importantly than the animated series, there's some great stuff on Spectre and on uh, planet Earth and um, uh, um, Earth 2? Earth 2? Genesis, Genesis 2. Genesis 2. Genesis 2, right. And, and Quester tapes. And, of course, Quester tapes, which in so many ways um, uh, laid the groundwork for Next Generation. Mm-hmm. Um, but not anything on yet, yet, on the the famous John Povell Roddenberry project. What was it called? The Nine? The Nine. That's in the fifth volume. Oh, As a matter boy. of fact, I was just polishing that chapter yesterday with the editor and putting pictures in and so forth. So that book will be out in about uh, three months, uh, mid-May, I believe. These are wonderful stories that have uh, never been really told before, uh, but we're very excited to, to be uh, finally discovering them again uh, after being dug up from so long ago. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I know we should just I'm have Mark interview Gene. <laughs> no, so, that was a good Gene. What, what, uh, what, what do you hear from time to time? Uh, Darren will he, channel his. He, he just pops up occasionally when he, if he special guest on the show. Suspects there's money to be made somewhere. <laughs> what when you were doing the? I mean, when you finished the the, fir- the third book, which you know these are a thousand plus pages on each. 
season. I mean, there's no book that's gone into more depth about each season of the original Star Trek than 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 these are the voyages. Um, did you think you were done after you did that third book? Well, it was supposed to be one book, uh, so I never even thought I'd get to two or three. It was supposed to be one book on the on the original series, but after I went through all those memos. And and the stories in the memos are great, right. including the ones you wrote, Gene. Uh, but, oh yes, we, we had a lot of memos back and forth between <laughs> me and Bob Justman and so many other people. But uh, Bob Justman's memos, I love. I, I love. Yeah. So funny, and and it so just it, it showed you what they were doing with every episode, what they wanted to do, what the theme was, what, right. and the ones they didn't. I, like I love the Justman memo where he talked about alternate factor. Uh, and said, I wish we could take this out and bury it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> turn it back. Desi Lu's, He's not the only one. <laughs> Desi Lu paid for it. I guess we have to put it on the air. Right. Uh, so you find and you find out why that one went astray. Right. So that that's the, the fun thing for me. And that's why it became three books right. because of, of just the good material there. Uh, and same thing with this. This was supposed to be one book, this, uh, this new one. That's the new one. And that's volume one. In volume two, he's smiling. Because <laughs> uh, he just saw his check from pocketbooks for the novelization. Right. <laughs> but again, you know, when I started unearthing all the things that uh, you didn't want dug up, I'm going to keep <laughs> Eugene, uh, is, uh, and I can understand why with some of those memos, but uh, uh, you find out what he went through throughout that decade. And, you know, you're, you're a little younger than me, so I first started watching Star Trek on NBC. Mm-hmm. I was 10. But I caught it at that time. You probably started in the in the mid seventies, mid seventies, yeah, yeah. And I'm young. Yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> when the world was new. <laughs> but you know, the thing that amazed me throughout the seventies is is everyone was watching it. It was on right. five nights a week in every city across the country, and you kept wondering why isn't it coming back? We saw right. the conventions, we saw all that stuff. Well, that's what these two new books cover: is the coming of the conventions, the boom in syndication. Uh, and why it wasn't coming back. And people were still writing to NBC, thinking they were the bad guys. You canceled it. Why won't you bring it back right. on the air? NBC wanted it. I mean, they went to, uh, as you, you read in this book, uh, Mark, the volume two, they, they came to Paramount as early as 71 mm-hmm. yeah. to try to get the show back and came back every year to get the show back. And it was Paramount right. that wouldn't give it to them. And for a lot of reasons, afraid the, the bottom would fall out of syndication, mm-hmm. uh, which was silly. Like now, you know, that shows how long ago that was, because now you can watch uh, Law and Order five nights a week, right. uh, actually probably oh, so marathons. Yeah. So short-sighted. And still making new ones. Right. So it, it, they thought, no, if we make new ones, who's going to watch the reruns? That shows how much they knew the show. But the other problem was, uh, as we find out in the memos, was that they gave away the Enterprise to the Smithsonian. Mm-hmm. They tore down the sets. They yep. destroyed the props. They got rid of the costumes, everything. So the cost to remake and relaunch all that was going to be so much. Yeah, because they didn't have a commitment to do a whole season. They wanted to repilot the show. Yeah. They could have amortized it over the course of one season. It would have been doable. But you can't do a pilot. And they weren't going to deficit a pilot when they had to build all those sets and pay those actors right. and make those uniforms and everything else. Were you a fan? I mean, how did you get involved in doing it? Because, of course, you did I Spy, which is a wonderful book, um, which has lost a bit of its audience these days. Um, But I'm sure it's very popular in jail, you know. (laughs) But but tell us, you know, what was the impetus for you getting involved to do the structure? Because, of course, it predates. um, You obviously got involved with Gene and Bob Justman very early. You had sold a show to Next Generation mm. where that relationship began. Can you, you know, take us back? And well, that, actually, this... the books came first, although they didn't come out right. first. Mm. Uh, but I interviewed Gene for a uh, uh, 
local Los Angeles uh, TV special. I seem to think it was Channel 13, which may, would make sense because they were carrying the show. But back in 82. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And, and I, I, w- I was just getting going writing at that point, but I was working for this company, and they said, who knows anything about Star Trek? And of course, you know, I'm in your movie. I mean, basically, I'm that yeah. same person in your movie. And so I put my hand up, and I said, oh, I love Star Trek. And they said, okay, you're, you need to go to Paramount and interview Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> <laughs> so after I, cha- insist, uh, after I changed my pants and everything, I was, I was okay to go down there. No, I was nervous as hell. And um, uh, so I interviewed him for that show, and I just asked him at some point, uh, if because I love the making of Star Trek, as we all did, sure. you know, the, the book from 68. Mm-hmm, but, it, you know, it, it came out while the show was still in production. It didn't yeah, it cover— It contemporaneous. It didn't yeah. cover the third season, yeah. Really, in very few of the episodes, mostly yeah. mostly mm-hmm. the pilots getting it launched, that— so I asked him if he had kept those type of memos for everything. And there was 40-something boxes of memos. And I'm talking boxes like this, you know. So um, he, he gave me permission to do it. Uh, and uh, Susan, come in here and copy 40 boxes of... Uh, <laughs> no, she she would actually give the stuff to me to take out of oh, the and studio copy it, no. and copy it. I mean, that was the trust mm, you know, yeah. back then. Uh, you still didn't even know what, it, what the value was, I guess, right. which is surprising because he was doing Lincoln Enterprises. You would think handing this stuff to people, so all the scripts and sure. everything, you know, what's going to happen? But that's that's how he was. But also, he was going through a bad situation. And I'm finding out now with all the research in, into the 1970s is uh, they t- Paramount had taken Star Trek away from him right. and given it to Hard Bennett. Uh, so he was uh, not happy. And, and so I... Got him on the right day, you know, where he was. Right. He, I did this. Are you going to say that in your books? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, was happy to well, because he did do it. This is right when he was being made an executive consultant. Star Trek II was coming out. <laughs> and so he wanted his story told. And he figured you were the guy to do it. Yeah. And he gives you all these memos and scripts and stuff. And then so you now have them. You make copies. Right. Um, it just what took happens a lot in the of interim? Years. Mm-hmm. And that's why uh, when Next Generation came on, I called him and uh, said, uh, can I come in and pitch? And he said, sure. I, I went in and pitched to him, uh, Sarek. But um, uh, I was working on the book or collecting and interviewing people. Uh, I'd interviewed Dorothy by that point, but I hadn't interviewed Bob Justman or John D.F. Black or a lot of the others. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just took a lot of years to do that. But I, I think what really scared me and made me take that long to do it is just how much material there was. Right. I thought, oh, God, I'm going to have to go through all this, all these memos, and, and it's just uh, immense. And, I, and how am I going to fit all that in a book? Well, I, I wasn't able to. I fit it in three. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, when you're reading that stuff, it's a treasure trove. Mm-hmm. And it shows you their thinking on every episode and everything they were fighting and everything they were doing. And how they evolved. And, and how NBC was. And we always paint NBC as just the demon. But even though uh, Stan Robertson, uh, the production manager at NBC who was assigned to Star Trek, he's fighting them on it. He hates bottle shows. Mm-hmm. So he was always fighting them on that. Charlie X, he says, uh, can it take place on a planet? And Roddenberry writes back and says, no, because you would just run away from him. You know, right. the only way he's a danger is if you're trapped on a ship right. with him and there's nowhere to go. To but I loved, I loved um, what you did for Stanley Robertson because, you know, Roddenberry would always demonize the network executive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Stanley Robertson's a really interesting guy in that he was the first African-American network, you know, executive. Yes. Um, he was very smart. He was young. He was hip. He ended up actually running Bill Cosby's company many mm-hmm. years later. And um, 
But, you know, there's that push-pull. It's like, of course, the network, which is paying the same amount every week Mm -hmm. for the show, wants more planet shows, more fighting, more action. But Desilu, which is, you know, deficiting it, paying the the, the cost between what D- and NBC, and they don't have any guarantee they're going to get the money back, mm-hmm. is saying, you got to make these cheaper. Keep them on the ship. Right. You built those already. You got to shoot it on the back lot. We're, you know, we're not going to go surprisingly, out. surprisingly, were some of the best episodes. Yeah, because exactly. of the conflict mm-hmm. and the tension that arrived. Corbinite Maneuver. The conflict. Yeah, Naked Time, all that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, <laughs> well, that one too. Space Seed, yeah. yes, absolutely. That was a bottle show. And Doomsday Machine. I mean, some of my favorite episodes. Right. They're on, yeah. on the Absolutely. ship. Uh, but Robertson, as we saw in his memos in these books, came up with a lot of good ideas, too. And he was the one who was always pushing Roddenberry to quicken the pace. He would say, you got to grab him in the teaser mm-hmm. and grab him so hard they're not going to switch over to the other networks. And so they wanted more action. They wanted more fighting. They wanted more romance with Kirk kissing the green women and all that stuff. That was coming from NBC. They were pushing that. And even though they fought against uh, Spock... In the pilots, afraid that the South wouldn't watch the show because he was too satanic looking. Yeah. Uh, by the fourth, fifth episode, when the fan mail was pouring in, right. now NBC's writing and saying more Spock. Right. So you you really see what they were going through, and you see the the why the creative decisions were made for certain episodes and the type of things that they were doing in the show. Well, now the same deal with the seventies. Uh, you see uh, all the um, the walls that were being put up about bringing Star Trek back from the studio that owned the property. Mm -hmm. And finally, NBC said, come on, give us something. So they gave him the animated show. Yeah. Don't have to rebuild the ship. Don't have to rebuild anything. And uh, But they wanted it in prime time. And so they um, uh, finally, in the next volume that's coming up, Mark, because I know that's what you want to know about. (laughs) You don't want to know about something you've read already. But uh, finally, NBC comes and offers a full season commitment and a two-hour movie premiere. And even when they did that, Paramount said no, because now Paramount was thinking, hey, maybe we should launch a network and use Star Trek. So you get all that, and you see how close. uh, You know, uh, uh, Phase 2 has been misreported in other books. They all say that it it, basically the plug was pulled by August. They started developing the show in, like, June— July, and, they, and there's another book out there that says on August 1st there was a, this meeting that took place, and that was it. I've got all the memos, you know, and they were still developing that show, and they were still planning on going into production uh, with that, that thing. 77, right? Yeah, yeah. 77. And, and finally, uh, when November came along, they pushed it back. The premiere was now pushed back into uh, 78. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was going to be like spring, and then it got pushed in the summer, and then it was right. pushed to the fall. So people started thinking maybe this isn't going to happen. But they were still preparing it, believing right. it was going to happen. They had 13 scripts written, ready to go. Which uh, goes along with that theory that it wasn't it wasn't Star Wars that encouraged them to make a movie. It was Close Encounters. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because that came out in November. Yep. Well, both, but they both. also it was the one-two punch. Right. They also right. didn't want the bad press from canceling the TV series. Right. So there was a while where the TV series was still in prep, but they knew they were doing a movie, mm-hmm. and yeah. they just hadn't pulled the plug. That started in November. Yeah. Uh, so, I when I read uh, articles and and uh, another book that's out on it, it uh, from years and years ago, it also I thought, Jesus, they just were starting, and on August first, the whole plug is pulled. And that came from a quote that uh, Bob Goodman 
uh, did in an interview. Well, but none of the memos back that quote up. Right. You know, so it it was still going strong into November, and that's when they and they were still having scripts coming in through uh, into February the following year. Wow. They were still rewriting the scripts and bringing them in, but they had a feeling at that point that they weren't going to get around to shooting those. Uh, so then with Close Encounters, following on the heels of Star Wars, now it's going to be a movie. They grabbed that two-hour uh, TV right. episode and turned it into the big budget. And Paramount's thinking, well, this was written for TV, but if we throw a lot of special effects in, maybe it'll feel like big screen. Right. Well, and when I ask you, you know, because there's that old uh, story, you know, when Man Shot Liberty Valance, you know, print the legend. And, you know, with Gene, there's a lot of parsing reality from the legend. And, you know, how much of that did you have to do in writing your books? It's sort of like he would go to conventions and tell a certain story which had no bearing in reality, you know, and then the memos, you know, to a certain extent are more accurate about, right. you know, so you know, how much of that, and did it change after he died in terms of the way that, did you feel you had more freedom to tell the story or? Yeah, it, it always does when somebody dies, but uh, you're not, because I don't like to hurt people. And when I interview people and, uh, you know, I try to help them along. Uh, I remember uh, when I did the I Spy book, you know, Bob Cope was so gracious to us. He had me and Linda LaRosa over seven, eight times to his house for marathon interviews. And we would transcribe the interviews and we'd look at it and he'd be talking about Sheldon Leonard and they didn't get along. And we'd look at it and go, okay, how can we help him? Because you don't want to change the quotes, but you can put in the clutch pedals between the quotes kind of saying, well, what he meant, you know, because we knew what he what he meant. Right. But sometimes you say something that's just not going to come off good. And and interviewing the person, you understand what they mean because you can hear the tone in their voice. But when the words are on a page or like an email, you don't always get that. Well, same thing with Gene, you know, because I met with him on numerous occasions and talked to him. And then I talked to people who spent all that time with him, like Susan Sackett and John Polvo and on and on, and uh, uh, Harold Livingston and... Uh, interviewed all of them, you know, and uh, so it's, you know, he would get up and he would spin it a little bit in the conventions. I mean, the only, I can only think of a couple lies, out and out lies that he told. One is uh, NBC was not against a woman yeah. second right. in command. Right. They were against Major, Major yeah. because of the relationship yes. and she wasn't known. Right. They're not going to have her second star of a series. Right. Uh, they were doing uh, Girl from Mongo at that time, for right. Christ's sake, you know. And the other lie I found out researching the Irwin Allen books, which they asked me to do. When they said, "Can you do that for right. Lost in Space?" And I said, "Well, <laughs> you know, what was the theme of Lost in Space? Was there one?" But, but I said, "If if if you give me access to his private papers, because then it becomes very interesting to see what he was up against." Well, Gene always told the story about he went to CBS. CBS and they picked his mind and picked Oscar Katz's mind. And then afterwards, after a couple hours, they said, well, thank you very much, but we have one of our own called yeah. Lost in Space. They met with Irwin Allen two weeks after they met with Gene Roddenberry. You know, hmm. so Lost in Space got on first because it didn't have to do two pilots. Right. You know, the first pilot sold. Mm-hmm. Yep. But that meeting came afterwards. Oh, that's very interesting. So, you know, I have caught a few fibs. Uh, but he was an entertainer. He's up in front of a crowd, and he's going to spin it a little bit. Plus, he has his pride. Uh, but most of the stuff he told was true. It's just the way he saw it. 
I don't think he was lying. I think I think that's the way he sure. really tr- truly saw it and believed it. Well, the the, the whole classic too cerebral story about the cage. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh. <laughs> that that was one of the things they NBC said. Yeah. It is too cerebral. But uh, you know, but that was one. That was yeah. Of that was ten ten yeah, issues. Ten issues they had. Okay, with but you know that so. Is he lying when he said that by not revealing the rest of the story, or is that really how he heard it? Right, because that's the one that feeds the ego. Right, right. right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So now it's worth mentioning. You you alluded to the Lost in Space, the Irwin Allen books. You did a, a similar um, three mm-hmm. volume series devoted to Irwin um, Allen and right. Lost in Space. What was that? Something you were passionate about, or was it more that they had come to you in the wake of this and were interested in having you do something similar. I was always interested in knowing what made Irwin Allen tick. Nobody had written a book on him. Nobody had ever had access to his private papers. And the one thing about Irwin Allen, and we've got to give him his due. I mean, he, he got Voice Bomb the Sea on the network, and I've done a book on that. And, and he then he got Lost in Space the following year, and it was the year after that that Star Trek came on. Right. If it hadn't been for those two shows, NBC would not have gone after Star Trek. They just were losing in the time slots against those two shows. So we got to get one of our own. And and so he was the one who proved to the networks that you can do an hour-long science fiction show with special effects every week with a continuing cast. Before that, we had Twilight Zone and Outer Limits. Mm-hmm. Not all of them were loaded up with special effects. Outer Limits more so than Twilight Zone. Right. But you didn't have to worry about the same actors. Right. They had to shoot episodes of uh, Voice Bound the Sea and Lost in Space Two episodes during the same week sometimes because they fell behind schedule. So you would have Admiral Nelson in this episode and Crane's off somewhere. Who knows? And at the same time, Crane's doing this. And the Admiral's in Washington. And they, they would break it, break it up and do two units. Well, Star Trek never did that. Right. But he had to do it. Uh, the censor uh, issues with ABC and CBS were immense, much worse than Star Trek because the shows were on earlier in the family hour. Mm. So Star Trek had a little more... Leaveway. Uh, so, but but the thing about Irwin is his pilots would usually be pretty good, yeah, or at least serious. Right. Uh, he didn't run things through uh, DeForest Research and NASA and Rand Corporation like Roddenberry did. So the science wasn't always very accurate, but it was serious. And those and he would direct those, and those were the ones the way he wanted the series to be. But we always saw the shows kind of go down. Yes. Right. Lost in Space became a comedy. Voice of Bomb C became a monster of the week. Well, I interviewed all the network people, uh, Lou Hunter from ABC, and he said every time he showed had a monster, which was maybe once out of every four or five episodes, the ratings would spike. Mm-hmm. It was already winning its time slot, but they would spike. And so it was give us more monsters, more monsters, more monsters. Uh, with Lost in Space, it was uh, CBS was getting too many letters from parents who were upset because their kids would scream if they couldn't watch the show. But then they couldn't get to sleep and they'd be having nightmares because they were scared to death. And so CBS came to him and said, you know, you've got this Dr. Smith has programmed the robot to kill the Robinsons, including the kids. And you can't do that in the family hour. (laughs) You know, they said, get rid of the character, get rid of both of them, dismantle the robot, have Smith die. He's a special guest star anyway. Get rid of him. And so uh, Irwin Allen with Jonathan Harris came up with the idea, let's make him less threatening, which means make him sillier, funnier, and so forth. So I wanted to get into Irwin's mind and find out why his shows always went down. Well, the networks. And what you see in these books is Gene fought the networks. 
And if he hadn't, Star Trek probably might have made the five-year mission. You know, because it it was doing very well on Thursday nights, contrary to folklore. And you've seen the ratings. You know, it was winning its time slot quite often against Bewitched and against the CBS Thursday Night Movie and My Three Sons. It was pretty much those three shows were real close in the ratings. Was that what surprised you the most when you were researching and writing your book of all the things you discovered over the course of doing these books? Yeah. And and. We only had a few ratings from the show files because they did not sh- routinely share them with the producers and the actors back then. Everybody want more money. Right. So you knew who the top shows are. You knew Bonanza was number one. You knew the top ten. But where the other ones were, it was like three times a year during sweeps that maybe Variety or Broadcasting would print the Nielsen or Arbitrons. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they would pay a pretty penny to get them. Uh, so this stuff normally wasn't shared. Uh, so we found some ratings reports in the show files, like Man Trap having a 47% audience share. Mm. Wow. I mean, come on. 47%. Can you believe right. that? I showed today. Uh, of course, there were only three networks and a couple handful of the channels. But uh, So we went to, um, and I probably told you this at one point, Mark, but we went to Nielsen to get the ratings. Right. And the response was, we don't keep stuff from back then. and uh, And I thought, that can't be. My publisher's not telling me the truth. You know? right, so right. I called, got the same story. And uh, and then on a whim, one day, about six months later, I called up and uh, I said, yeah, I want to license the ratings for uh, Star Trek from the 1960s for every week. And, oh, right away, they put yeah, me through to somebody. Yeah, as you're willing to write the check, then there's... It's... And boom, they went down, they were all down there, and they sent me the reports and, and uh, you know, a few hundred bucks a report. You spent several thousand dollars. Like so, that. you know, the, the, the never-ending battle between a, a showrunner, creator, and the network over content relative to ratings and audience response mm-hmm. and people operating on fear, anxiety, or, you know, hope, or whatever it is they're operating on. Um, you know, every showrunner, uh, every creator approaches that relationship mm-hmm. very differently. Um, you know, there are some people who just say, you know, Whatever you say, boss. There are other people who will throw a fit. Uh, I know I, I've been on enough shows to kind of see a, a spectrum of that. And we know how, how Gene has kind of presented his relationship uh, with the network. And we sort of know how Gene presents himself in public and sort of his, his position and all of that. But mm-hmm. reading the memos and, and through your interviews, like how would you describe his actual relationship with the network in the sense of how he managed um, the content of the show, yeah. right, as a, as a response to notes from the network, especially as they were driving the, the numbers? Yeah. He liked Stan Robertson for about a month, and he hated everybody else. I mean, hated. You know, he really did not like I mean, he's an ex-cop, sergeant. Mm-hmm. PD, ex-combat uh, pilot from World War II. Uh, you know, he, he didn't like the network telling him what to do. And he, and he wanted to be a modern-day Jonathan Swift. He wanted to make commentary on things that you couldn't talk about back then. And NBC was stopping him from doing it. But that's part of the fun that, that you know, when I found out, like um, Dagger the Mind, the first mm-hmm. one with the Vulcan mind right. meld, and to find out that it was supposed to be hypnotizing him with a watch. Right. And NBC said, you can't do that. You cannot hypnotize anybody on the NBC television network because, hey, maybe somebody at home will get a little goofy, right? So uh, they had to figure out a way to keep that story element in. 
and Roddenberry came up with the the mind meld. Wow. That was a way, well, that we can do that on TV, right, NBC? Right. And they said, fine. So it's fun seeing how he he would get find ways to get around the network. Mm-hmm. Well, the same thing in the 70s with those pilots, Mark. Mm-hmm. They, you know, when I was watching those, when I was in, in high school watching those things, so the Genesis 2 and Quester tapes, I kept thinking, oh, he's recycling from Star Trek, even though the subterranean thing, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, yeah, yeah. the effects was like the stars, the, the sound effects, all this stuff. And then I get into the memos and I find out that these networks are saying, make it more like Star Trek. Right. And as a matter of fact, it was ABC who came to him and said, we got a great new title for that pilot you did. We're going to call it Strange New World. Mm-hmm. What do you think? You know, and, and they were trying to get the Star Trek people sure. to come in because they all wanted Star Trek. Tonight, WGN Television presents The Amazing Story of Quester, a science-created robot with superhuman powers who will stop at nothing to find his creator. Robert Foxworth and Mike Farrell star in The Quester Tapes. You are simply an ambulatory computer device. Will you accept that much? Completely. Can you inform me why I must find my creator? I'm beginning to worry about that myself. I must leave immediately for a metropolitan complex known as London. And it is essential that you accompany me. Well, before we talk about that, I want to, you know, we didn't really talk much on the show, but somebody who I think more than anybody, you did a a really great job of sort of showcasing his importance to Star Trek or his role on Star Trek and sort of gave him a second life, which John D.F. Black, you know, uh, I think yeah. the book's really um, shown a light on his contribution to Star Trek, which had been largely overlooked until your first book came out. Right. And, you know, it was shortly before he died, which is a wonderful thing. What can you say about sort of, you know, John and, you know, his importance, you know, early on to Star Trek and obviously a little bit of his you know, butting heads with because this is somebody I know we've done a lot on DC, we've done a lot on sure. some of the other people passed away, but we haven't really mm-hmm. talked about John. And obviously, you got to know him very well at the end well, of his he life. He was the third most important person during those first uh, 16 episodes. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I put Bob Justman above John D.F. Black. Yeah, yeah. And if you read the memos, you see why. I mean, uh, they're not just funny, but they're so, the notes are so right on, yeah. you know, and perfect. Well, Bob, uh, John's notes were good too. Uh, but he didn't write as lengthy memos usually. So Roddenberry was getting more feedback from uh, Bob Justman. And Roddenberry was rewriting all those first 16 scripts. Mm-hmm. I mean, half, more than half of the dialogue you're hearing is from Gene Roddenberry. Corbinite Maneuver, everything. I remember Paul Snyder said, the only thing I recognize on my episodes when I watch them on TV is my name. Yeah. You know, So Roddenberry was rewriting those things and setting the tone that then Gene Kuhn would come in and follow and modify, making it a little more human, a little more um, humorous. But John D.S. Black, uh, his contributions were major. And when you just think, I'll, I'll just answer it this way for you. He's the guy who wrote, came up with the words, uh, space the final frontier. Mm-hmm. Yep. Not Roddenberry, John. So he was very important uh, to get it going. But yeah, he and Roddenberry uh, 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 butted heads. And I, and I told John, you know, because I read all the drafts of the scripts, and John would say he would ruin the naked time. Yeah, there was no love for Gene. From <laughs> and, John, and I yeah. said, John, I think the final draft is better. You know, that wasn't always the case. But in that case, I, I think it was. I, I said, and you wrote a great story, and you came up with some great, uh, great scenes within the story. But 
the lines, uh, uh, she, she takes, I give. She won't live my life. I have to live her. That's Gene Roddenberry. Yeah. Of course it is because it's a little over the top. <laughs> but, but it's so powerful. It's such a great scene. Uh, the, 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 most of the lines that Spock has during his breakdown was Gene Roddenberry. Yeah, it seemed like John's problems with the show were coming from a very personal place as opposed to um, a, professional. a professional. Because, you know, it was like, I brought in all these science fiction writers that he used and then he rewrote them. And, you know, they looked at me as having you know screwed them over, you know, but... From a professional place, you know, a showrunner who's launching their show has every right to rewrite you and to make right. the show what they want it to be. And uh, they weren't you know, used to it back then. Right. Uh, you know, when I did the Ice Spy book, I got those scripts and they're horrible. And these are from the same writers, a lot right. of the same sure. people, and they're not well written. Yeah. You know, at all. And granted, they didn't have word processors, and you don't want to have to retype the page because you didn't get the punctuation <laughs> right. But it's almost illiterate. These scripts, yeah. and these for, are from TV writers who made the rounds. Yeah, who were working constantly. Uh, it, Cosby and Copri wrote those scripts on the set, mm-hmm. and they were allowed to do that because it was filming out of the country. And so NBC right. had to sign off on it, and boom, they they would say, "Okay, what's this scene about?" And they'd rewrite it. But Star Trek, you came in there, and none of these writers were used to being asked to do that many drafts. Mm -hmm. And then not recognizing most of the work that they did on the screen. I mean, most of those writers, you know, it's funny. When I was younger and before I did all this work and the research, I would would look at it and and think, that's a great script, too, you know. I wonder why his other one isn't so good. Looking at a specific writer or whatever. Well, it, it most of what we were seeing was not from that writer, you know, the initial idea. But I but listen, I pitched to Roddenberry, and it became a conversation. You know, I just want I I said I wonder what would happen uh, when a Vulcan goes through senility, and he said, well, what what do you think would happen? And I, you know, that's how we always pitch. It's a question, and that gets them to respond hopefully. Uh, you know, when I would pitch to Mike Pillar, I'd say, I wonder what would happen. He says, who cares? <laughs> With his feet on the desk, you know, I'm, I'm pitching to the bottom of his tennis shoes. But but Gene was uh, a wonderful person to pitch to. And he would start discussing it. It would become a conversation and it would build from there. And then he would say, go home and write it. Well, you're writing a lot of his stuff, a lot of his ideas. And that's, I'll tell you about the new book, uh, the one coming up in a few months, part two, that finishes off the 70s. Or volume five. Yeah, volume, I, I wish it had called that because it gets <laughs> confusing to me. I don't want to have to use this whole title. These are the voyages. Uh, Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek in the 1970s, volume one. I just call it TATV four. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, 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 um, But, uh, his, you know, his when I saw the movie, when it came out in 79, I thought, what, Roddenberry didn't help write this? Because his name's not on the screen, just his producer. He got cheated out of a credit. I mean, that was his idea. It was his story. He did more drafts of that script than anybody. And and then to see him robbed of that credit at the end. Well, to be fair, he got a bunch of money for the novel. <laughs> yeah, I mean. That the other know, writers did. That's right. Yeah. I, I mean, his name's all over that movie. Yeah. Listen, yeah. I like Harold a lot. I, I yeah. interviewed him, and he's a kick. He's a he kid. absolutely is. And, and he's, there's and no he, love lost from Mr. He talked about now. that, too. Oh, so he I didn't hates, get a piece of that. Yeah. He hates, he hates yeah. Gene. <laughs> Gene was, you know, Gene, you said it earlier, one of you, probably maybe both of you, money was the thing. I mean, taking half of Alexander Courage's... Uh, yeah. uh, but everyone was doing it at the time. Glenn yeah. Larson does it in Galactic. I mean, everybody was doing it at the time. Yeah. They were getting a piece of the main title. Yeah. He, he grew up poor, and, and he would go after every dollar. 
it's funny seeing these memos where he's chasing somebody at Desilu to get reimbursed a dollar eighty. I know yeah. that would be like eighteen dollars today, sure. well, and, but still, and, you know, you look at these people who did grow up in the depression, and so they right. know how poor poor can be. And then what happens? They hit it, you know, they they hit it big, like a Shatner or Gene. But at the time, look at Gene. You know, we'll get to in the seventies. You know, he's scraping by. Yeah. Bill Shatner's living they out of the back are. of his yeah. truck. You know, yeah, I yeah. mean, they say there are no second acts, but these guys, thank God, had a second act, third act, you know, because, uh, you know, and, and you can talk to that. I mean, Gene, you know, really had it tough for a while in, in the 70s, and he was lucky to get these shows. It's funny because I was thinking when they re- ABC repeated these shows, they were on the 430 movie. I don't know if you remember on Sci-Fi oh, Week. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But um, so let's talk a little bit about those, you know, posts that we took, the animated series, we know, uh, obviously. But he, you know, was developing shows, all of which he thought would go. I think mm-hmm. the most interesting thing that comes across in your book about Quester Tapes is the fact that they wanted to do it, and Gene is the one who doesn't want to do it, who ultimately it dies because of Gene, mm-hmm. uh, which is fascinating because I think the story was always, you know, the network was, you know, passed on it. But, you know, what you find out is, no, it's like sort of Gene was responsible for Quester tapes not happening, which yeah. is amazing because he was so desperate for a show to go at that point because, you know, it's, it's strike three and you're out. But and, they were tinkering too much. And and he walked off of planet Earth, too. Yeah. Um, not Not after the movie, but when it got ordered as a series. Right. And they shot two episodes, and then that got re-released as Strange New World. Uh, ABC was changing too much. And so he just said, I'm stepping away. But NBC was tough for him because Quester Tapes, they brought in a producer who was going to be the showrunner. Yeah. And uh, they were cha- and they took uh, they took Leonard Nimoy out, which really bothered him. That was, you know, I was always sad that uh, I didn't get that book out in time for Leonard because Leonard told me in the interviews that, you know, Gene really screwed me. You know, I was supposed to be yes. Quester. It was a source mm-hmm. of huge bitterness that never went away between yeah. the two of them. Right. And and then uh, I come across that memo, you know, where Gene quits because they're getting rid of... He's, he's, and, so, and so the head of Universal writes back to him and says, so let me get this straight. You're saying that if Leonard's not going to be in the show, you're not going to produce it, Right. We're good with that. And they were going to let him go. And he was just going to be a consultant yeah. on the show. But then they got brought him back in. And when he saw that Foxworthy was actually pretty good and good for the part. But uh, but Gene didn't stab Leonard in the back like he thought. Right. You know, he went bad for him. And it's interesting because that really was the beginning of a lot of animosity for, yeah. that never really went away. And, um, uh, you know, I mean, Quester Tapes, I think most people believe, is probably the best of the pilots that he's done that didn't get picked up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, by the time you get to what, what was the second one after uh, Planet Earth is, uh, after Genesis 2 is... Um, Spectre. Spectre. I'd come here to meet a man I vowed never to see again. He was vain, arrogant, selfish, but his brilliance was still irresistible. He was also dangerous, never to me. But this evening began for both of us a slide into horrors unimaginable, a descent into a corner of hell. Spectre, which is kind of like an early progenitor of the X-Files in a way. And they just didn't know what, you know, I mean, at that, and shot in England, he wasn't as involved with that. Um, These were all projects that were uh, way ahead of their time, <laughs> obviously. Uh, 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 um, uh, 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 uh. 
<laughs> you know, it's uh, luckily uh, luckily we found other things to do later, but uh, unfortunately none of them uh, really grabbed on the way that uh, we wanted them to. And unfortunately, I think part of you know they got saddled with some really mediocre casting, you know, uh, on um, you know with Dylan Hunt as well. It was you know, I mean, John Saxon was a bit of an improvement, but right. it's uh, not much. Yeah. Not much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the casting wasn't good. Uh, Quester had the best casting. For sure. Uh, Mike Farrell was wonderful. Mike Farrell didn't know uh, why he got dropped until we interviewed him for mm-hmm. the book. And we were able to tell him yeah, yeah. and everything. So, um, But Gene was over in England. You were mm-hmm. in England, Gene. Don't you remember? I, <laughs> there's so many things that I don't remember from that time. A <laughs> <laughs> little too much LDS? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, Gene was there for the entire production. Oh, was he? Okay. Yeah, yeah. But he was going down at night to some of the uh, adult district in London. You don't remember that. Uh, I'm sure there was a lot of research being done on this or that. On the occult. No, he, he was there and uh, he wanted Culp because he loved I Spy. Um, and that surprised me. See, I didn't, I didn't know that a series had been ordered for Genesis 2 and a series had been ordered for Quester and, right. until I got into the files and found all this stuff. Uh, that they were actually writing scripts and doing all that. I didn't know a lot of this either. Uh, well, NBC wanted to go with Spectre. And uh, it was Culp who didn't want to do it. Hmm. And Culp told me that. Mm-hmm. You know, He, he said, I, I was re- clear up front. Uh, I was not committing to the series. And he had it in his contract right, right. to where he could choose later. But Gene wanted him so much and, want, and wanted to get it going with it so quickly that they, they uh, grabbed Culp. And then after he had the experience of making the pilot, he said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do this weekly. He went and did America's uh, Greatest Superhero. Yeah, right, yeah. Really yeah. Right, Greatest American Greatest Hero. Hero. Greatest American Hero instead, yeah. So all of his pilots got ordered for series. Hmm. And that wow. was the big surprise to hmm. me. But Gene was so burned out from doing Star Trek that he kept thinking he wanted to do it. But when he started dealing with the networks, yeah. And developing the episodes, it would go bad every time. Well, it's funny that the greatest legacy of uh, Genesis 2 is, you know, that robots return. The the, 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 the genesis of uh, Star Trek, the motion picture, came from Genesis 2. You know, that yeah. Alan Dean Foster pitch that ended up being, uh, you know, became in thy image, which became Star Trek, the motion picture. And it was all because of Genesis 2. My name is Dylan Hunt. My story begins the day on which I died. My last look at my world was to be from inside a pressure chamber at NASA's underground laboratory in Carlsbad Caverns. Our goal was the development of a form of suspended animation which would allow our astronauts to make longer voyages through our solar system. It had been my decision that our method was ready to test on a human, so it seemed that any risk should be mine too. I had guided the basic research since being appointed chief of the project on February 14, 1979. I arrived from Washington, D.C. on the newly completed underground sub-shuttle. Perhaps my confidence in our experiment dated from that trip. The Continental Defense Command in Carlsbad Caverns had permitted NASA to build our laboratory in a deep grotto where constant temperatures were ideal for our experiments. By mid-year, we had slowed the aging process in test animals to the equivalent of less than one day for every 10 years of sleep. Our problem in reviving the animals was solved when we discovered a strong relationship between the will to survive and the need to reproduce. 
After the inevitable jokes over the possibility of male and female astronaut teams, massive injections of brain stimulants were found to work as well. By every measurement we knew of, the experiment should have gone perfectly. What we did not know was that a fault, a flaw, existed in the rock strata directly over our heads and that the slightest ground tremor would be enough to dislodge it. Yeah, well, that and that was Gene's idea. Yeah, and and uh, Alan Dean Foster, who I interviewed for the the book that's coming up as well, you know, he went in and pitched other things, mm-hmm. uh, and they weren't in love with them. And Gene said, "Well, here's an idea of mine," and gave him a couple pages on it, and that's where. Well, it and went. that was also sort of the source of uh, some of the uh, again lack of love for Gene during the arbitration over Star Trek: The Motion Picture over the, what was going to happen with the uh, credits on the script because Alan Dean Foster wanted credit and mm-hmm. you yeah. know gene was like hey i gave him my idea and yeah. uh well, it was a, a lot of acrimony say. there and, and rewrote it good ideas guild yeah. yeah and as as i said as somebody would pitch to gene I, I know that when you go and start to put it on paper half the half the ideas are from gene anyway right. it all came out of the conversation so the initial idea was his then they had their meeting you know and, and then he's rewriting you so for him not to get credit on those things wasn't right. So here's my question about the the pilots that were all ordered to series. Mm-hmm. None of them went to series. Right. So there's that saying that, you know, once is an accident, twice is a coincidence, three <laughs> times is enemy action. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, am I wrong in assuming that the that the enemy action was was Roddenberry undermining himself or was he just yeah. that snake bit? It's, it's like if you have three failed marriages, you right. know, what's the common denominator? You're Glenn Larson? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And and see, you guys know from your work that, that, you know, if if you have uh, uh, nothing but bad relationships with the network and if pilots keep selling because they got good ratings, Mm -hmm. uh, Genesis 2 got a 37% audience share. So, of course, they ordered it as a series. Uh, When it got uh, changed into Planet Earth and moved from CBS to ABC, it got 37, the exact same number, a couple of point one or two off, but 37% audience share. Wow. Um, and it's so bad. Yeah. The, so one, bad. the one that got the worst rating of, of them all was uh, Quester Tapes. Its rating wasn't that good, yeah. but NBC believed in the project. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, Gene was the common common denominator there, but I really believe that what the networks were doing to all those shows was not improving them. Right. Well, and Gene was the greenest writer there was in terms of recycling because not only do you have robots returned, you have, you know, Quester recycled his data. Right. You know, he was somebody who knew to take something that worked and would keep doing it until he, yeah. he, he was able to do it. Right. And it's fascinating to, uh, bless you, it's fascinating to see uh, the evolution of the script as well, you know, and Gene's in there with every draft. But throughout all this time, he was still um, here and there mm-hmm. dealing with uh sort of different rounds and different stories of working on a, a Star Trek movie, yeah. right? Yeah. All, all through this. Yeah. Well, what, what was shocking to me is after he turned in The God Thing, it wasn't called that, it was called right. Star Trek Two, but right. it later became The God Thing. Um, it's, it's not a perfect script by any means. I mean, it takes a long time to get to the regular characters because mm-hmm. Paramount wanted him to develop all these other characters. Right. Uh, plus it came from a book that he was working on that wasn't for Star Trek. Yeah. But but the thing is, is there's a lot of potential in there, you know, but it offended uh, Barry Diller. So they killed it. 
and they wouldn't even give Gene a reason why or notes. Mm. And this is the guy who created Star Trek. You know, and you, yeah, but you also got to know your audience. If you're pitching to a Barry Diller who's a very, very religious Catholic, yeah. you don't have Captain Kirk fighting Jesus on the bridge of the Enterprise. You know, it's yeah. just let's get back <laughs> back to your yeah. comment. It almost seems like he was self-destructive, right? You know, and uh, but then you know he comes back with another idea, and he and John Povell did one together, and they sent yeah. it in. And John told me they got a form letter from NBC. Saying thank you, but this is not for us. And it was a form letter. It wasn't even you mean from Paramount. From Paramount. From Paramount. Yeah. I'm sorry, from Paramount. And and so when you know the guy who created the show, yeah. you know, who's under contract to produce the movie, and you're sending him a form letter. Well, but they were also getting they were getting super frustrated with him. And yeah. then, you know, but then then he wasn't part of most of the meetings, most of the uh, pitch meetings, the story meetings that took place. About the only one he was part of was Harlan Ellison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you would think that would be the one he wouldn't be part of. <laughs> right, exactly. But, <laughs> but at least that's the one that would have made him seem like he was the, the guy in the room that's easy to deal with, right? Yeah. Because you got Harlan sitting <laughs> next really to you. That's really funny. That's really funny. Right. But they were talking to everybody at the time. As Robert, Robert Silverberg. Good cop, bad cop. <laughs> I mean, Robert Silverberg developed it briefly that's for right. them. I mean, you know. John D.F. Black. John D.F. Black. Yeah. I mean, they were talking to everybody. Yeah. And, uh, you know, eventually you get the guys who did. Um, you know, doing Planet of Titans, who did uh, Don't Look Now, you know, uh, Chris Bryant and Alan, Alan, whatever his name was. Um, but I don't remember offhand. I'm Alan, old. what's his name? Scott. Scott. Alan Scott, thank Scott. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> which, which was not uh, really a Star Trek script. No, right. no at all. It's, it's a Phil Kaufman script. It's yeah. not a Star Trek. And he admittedly, it was, you know, he'd like, oh, I've seen Star Trek once or twice. I, I, it's good. And he's just totally fascinated with Spock, mm-hmm. wants it to be a Spock-centric show. And, you know, you can't, disregard Kirk you know there's Kirk and Spock there's a reason and McCoy that it's a troika you know and to just totally you focus on Spock at your own peril if it's just going to be Spock um, and Nimoy would say that yeah Nimoy knew that yeah even Nimoy knew that that you needed Kirk I consider the Galileo 7 a failure you know right which is fascinating that he's so candid about that because yeah. it was a Spock story yeah. where you know but you know because this side of paradise even though it's a Spock story there is a major Kirk story happening at the same time. He's losing control of his crew and his ship. So mm-hmm. it's it's yes, it's a Spock story, but it's also a Kirk story. Right. Um, so I want to so I want to ask you, um, which is my favorite episode, by the way. This side, is of, it Paradise. The side of Paradise. Yeah. yeah, it's a great episode because because it is a great Spock story. But Kirk is still and and Gene always would ask for that in his memos. Remember, Kirk is our protagonist. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got to be how's this affecting Kirk? And when he's left alone on the ship. Right. And says, I realize how big this ship is. You know, he was always so driven to command this ship, but it's the people. Right. Without the people, it's just rooms. Yeah. And and to see him come to that realization was fantastic. Well, that's another thing I think you did a really great job of in the original book, which is showing how important um, creating authentic uh, science fiction story was. Bringing, you know, Harvey Lynn and, um, you know, trying to make sure that the um, – the show was forward thinking, you know, that it was anticipating the future, yeah. you know, whether it be in the medical technology or science technology, the fact that, you know, the enterprise was, you know, housing a giant computer brain. I mean, now we laugh because it doesn't seem, you know, they're ta- talking to computers and having access to the world, you know, at a fingertips. But, you know, back in the 60s, that's remarkable to be that forward thinking and that present. And yeah. he was willing, you know, and he was inv- inviting other people to be part of that he had, conversation. He had a very curious mind and he was well read. You know, he was fascinated in all these things. So that, that's why he hung with scientists, hung with people from NASA. And it was so important to him that they could watch the show. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned how he was cut out of a lot of conversations. I know your new book sort of ends at the dawn of Next Generation. Is that right? So that's another place where he is not really involved early on. And not only at the end, they sort of leverage mm-hmm. what's going on to get Gene back involved. And right. then they're not even really sure they want him. But it's that old fear. Yeah. It's like, will the Trekkies come without Gene? Right. Yeah. I mean, going all the way back to the beginning, NBC didn't want to work with Gene again after the lieutenant. But they wanted to do a deal with Lucille Ball. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so then it, it was like, well, he created Star Trek. If we're going to keep making money off of this, we have to keep him involved. But they never wanted to be involved with him because yeah. he was shooting himself in the foot. Right. You know, and but in a way, thank God he, he did, because, you know, when they try, when NBC tried to cancel Star Trek after the second season, they contacted Irwin Allen to see if he'd come over and do a science fiction show and put it in that time slot. <laughs> And they had to cancel that deal when right. all the letters came in, and, they, and right. with egg on their face, they had to renew Star Trek. So they were looking for a producer who would just do what they asked. And the kids like your stuff. That's all we care about. Yeah, and I, I thought, you know, I thought in your third book, uh, talking to um, the kids of Fred Freiberger was interesting. Mm-hmm. I'd never seen them spoken to before, and you know, had an interesting perspective. One of the good things I think, you, you know, the book really did also is shining a light on the fact that Gene was a lot more involved with the third season yeah. than people realized. Because the I conventional surprised. wisdom was like, "Oh, Gene washed his hands of this," yeah. but you know, not remotely. That's been the real fun of doing all these books, all five of them. Is is uh, I'm curious. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is my favorite show. You know, hands down. More than and, I Spy. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I love I Spy. You know, but but it was on too late for me when I was a kid. Right, right. You know, I couldn't stay up that late. Uh, so Star Trek I got to see, and so it hooked me at the age of 11 and 12. And, and you just always, like we always loved the music from when we were in junior high yes, and high sure. school, what, even if it's not as good as other music, but that's well, our, I don't know our that. favorite people. Yeah, <laughs> it's way better. <laughs> well, you came along in the late 70s. You were listening to disco. No, no, no. <laughs> New wave, baby, 80s. <laughs> but, um, but I would ask, uh, you know, because I agree. I mean, writing these kind of books are like being a detective or an archaeologist, which is, is a big part of the fun of it. I have so many questions, and I find them. In right, the, is that you get to talk to the people who give you the answers, right? And sometimes the answers aren't what you expect. So I want to ask you about, vol- I'm going to call it Volume 5, whether it's called Volume 5 or Thank not. Thank you. So in Volume 5, um, you're dealing, tell us what you're dealing with, because you're dealing with um, uh, the road's not taken, all the Star Trek projects that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Do you deal with the Cattlemen at all? No. The, the Herb Solo, uh, Gene Roddenberry project? No. Oh, oh Battle, Battle, Battlestar Earth. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Yeah, okay. It's got a chapter. It's got oh, a chapter. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, and uh, but I couldn't get Cy Shermack to give me an interview. And and my uh, Jacobs Brown has published his book, and they're publishing. And this he wouldn't book. even talk to you. So I, I had I had the director of operations, Jacobs Brown, call him to try to get him to give me an interview, and he still said no, because he didn't want to say anything bad about Gene or Bill Shatner, because he also produced Cy produced uh, Barbary Coast. Right, right. So no, it covered. And he wouldn't talk to you about Barbary Coast either, nah. which you got to include in there. Well, he's, he said a lot when he says, uh, and he actually said this, he used the old cliche, but he said, my mother taught me, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything uh, nice at all. That, that, those are the people you don't want to talk to for yeah, a part. Yeah, that's uh, not a fun interview. <laughs> so you do that, you, you cover the, the whole Star Trek, the motion picture drama, yeah. which, uh, which you know, obviously this is something that's been covered a lot. You know, there's Preston, Preston, Preston Fisher's Neil, book, Neil, the, Neil Jones. Preston Neil Jones. But I got the transcripts from the meetings between Bob Weiss, Gene Roddenberry, Bill Shatner and Leonard Nimoy. Now the story meetings they'd go and have in, in uh, uh, they would close the yeah, set yeah, down and yeah, they'd go exactly. in that room 
And having those transcripts, and maybe you've seen them. You know, I, I'm not saying I'm the first one did who's Gene, ever read them. Did Gene? Is this, this is part of what Gene gave you. This is this is later on out of the Roddenberry Vault. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we we went in there and and uh, found a lot of materials. Yeah, Gene only gave me stuff that had to do with uh, the original series. I did ask him questions at that time about the other things coming up. Right. So I do have quotes from him in the book that have been. 30 years coming. And do you but deal with the, that dark period for him where, you know, he's sort of removed from Star Trek yeah, after the motion picture he was depressed. and becomes the consultant? Yeah, he was angry and depressed. Uh, he was demoralized yeah. that he couldn't come up with something they would want to do, that they kept bringing other people in. And uh, and I think that's why he would go to these conventions. And I did this and I did right. that, you know, because you're venting your anger. Sure. And you're trying to reassure yourself that you got talent. Well, look, his resume was amazing. You know, look at all the scripts he wrote before Star Trek. Yeah, but presumably, I'm sure you cover the JFK project, and it's yeah. like, which is exactly the wrong way to go with the franchise after Star Trek motion picture. Absolutely. So he, you know, they come great to the opening point, scene though. Yeah, it's a great opening scene. I love that part. Yeah. Like, there's great scenes in it, yeah. and I would love to have seen it been made just because it's so gonzo. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it would have killed Star Trek. That would have been it. Um, And I cover all the scripts for uh, Phase 2. And so he tried to do it again. He tried. uh, That script that you're talking about was kind of a rip off of City on the Edge Forever. But instead of McCoy, it's going to be Scotty, who goes goes back. Um, And then uh, they did it uh, in uh, Phase 2, one of the scripts they had written. And it was Gene's idea. Let's talk about Phase 2 for a second. It's another thing that hasn't been all that well documented. The Reeve Stevens did a book about it that's that's pretty good. what you know? We've said on the show that had Phase Two happened, chances are that would have been the end of Star Trek. Um, I wonder if. What do you feel like in an alternate history if Phase Two had actually happened? Like, I wish it had. You wish it had. That's interesting. Because I think I loved Star Trek every week on TV. You know, I didn't want to wait three years to get a movie. And and uh, and what if the movie wasn't that good, like Star Trek Five? You know, it's like you waited all that time for this. You know, give me twenty six episodes a year, uh, and I, you know, got even six. having read the scripts and and knowing what they were developing and having seen the sets and and knowing that Spock wouldn't have been in it, it still would have been you would have that would they be your were preference. Doing some fun stuff with uh, Zahn, you know. Uh, I, I, I have, have you have you seen the scripts? Have you read mm. what they were doing? Yeah, as many as I could stomach. <laughs> <laughs> some of them are pretty awful, uh, and and some of them are pretty good. Uh, it's about fifty fifty. And uh, I wonder if the, the not-so-good ones would have gotten made. You know, I think, I think they would have been rewriting them more and working on it. Because if you look back at the original series and you look at those first draft scripts, they're pretty awful, many of them. I'll tell you what I would love to see. I would love to see either uh, audio dramas or a comic book adaptation of, of the Phase 2 scripts. That yeah. would be interesting. You know, I, I think that would be really did they exist? I thought, I thought the one Richard Bach wrote was very intriguing. Who'd been pitching the gene since the original. Yeah. 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 But then you look at like Margaret Armand's script with Alf Harris, the Savage uh, Syndrome, and I'm thinking, boy, they would need Vincent McEvity to direct this or somebody really good because – take it down, Shatner. Take it down, Bill. Because that could have been so embarrassing. They're playing basically like cavemen yeah, yeah. on the Enterprise. Yeah, They've yeah. lost their – their, their reason and their, their intellect, but they, they know each other, but they, on a, only a primal level, right. and they're breaking into tribes. And I'm reading that dialogue in that script and going, wow, I, I mean, a great director, getting great performances, maybe this could work, but it could really make The Way to Eden – 
looked brilliant. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, it had only been, t- you know, less than 10 years, and yet television had changed a bit, and I'm not sure you could get away with the kinds of stuff that they were getting away with on the original series. But, uh, I mean, you've said that before. I mean, having when you worked on the motion picture, it's like those yeah. original sets are... It's, it's I, think that, I think that they would have been so restricted in terms of time and money mm-hmm. to be able to bring it up to the quality that was necessary for that time. But if, if Phase 2 had come out in 70, late 77, early 78, mm-hmm. now you were just starting to watch the original show back then in diapers, I know. And, yeah, and diapers, did yeah. those sets look bad to you? No, not at all. They look great. But, but, but uh, you know, I think that you're talking when this show premiered, there was, there was a higher level of product, not a ton, but it just it, it, it did not have what the original show had. And I think it would have really suffered without Leonard. I don't think that David Cotrozon would have really... And, and certainly and his performance and, in Star Trek the Motion Picture doesn't indicate. That, no, yeah. that, that's for Yeah, that's you know for what? Sure. They, they didn't have Bob Justman. They didn't have Bob memos. Justman. That's a great point. His cynicism, his sarcasm mm-hmm. kept Star Trek on the right level. And Stan Robertson as being a foil mm-hmm. to June Roddenberry. Those two guys, if you look at their memos, you, you see the episodes get better, better, better with each re- rewrite. Right. And when you look at the Phase 2 ones, now they hadn't started the rewriting. Only John Pulver had done a little tinkering with those scripts as they were coming in. So if uh, Harold Livingston was actually rewriting those scripts, if Gene Roddenberry was rewriting them, maybe they would have improved. But then that's also, you know, you bring up Harold Livingston, God bless him. I I think he's a character. I love the guy. But I don't think that, you know, I I don't think he got Star Trek. During production? Yeah. They would have they would have yeah. killed each other, and and uh, and then I think you know John Povell just not super experienced either. I mean he was no. like you know he was like uh, Gene's handyman. You know he was mm-hmm. carrying boxes for him. It's like you know it's a, I don't I I mean, it's look, an interesting thought experiment. They needed a good rewrite person in the right. room. They needed somebody like Justman who could say, uh, can you imagine the memos he would have written on the Savage Syndrome? You know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> My bridge. Me, me, Kirk, my bridge. I, I, I think that, you know, and I think, you know, there's something to be said for the arrogance of youth when they were doing the original show. They just had so much to prove. And phase two, they were coming at it from a different perspective. I mean, just look at how flawed Next Generation was in its early days, where Gene was trying to do what he'd done before. And, you know, the time had passed. It. it didn't quite work. That That's first why season he, is dreadful. Yeah. So, uh, and then your book goes through Next Generation, the beginning of Next Generation, no, or no? No. Uh, it ends. This, where does it end? The fifth book. The fifth should, book, yes. should be called the fifth book. <laughs> it's, uh, I'll put a sticker on it. Um, it, it there ends, are five books. It ends in 1980. It ends with okay. uh, the release. The release of Star Trek the And picture. the reviews and everything right. else mm-hmm. and the box office. And the removal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, it kind of sets the stage for that. You, mm. you get a sense that he's going to be dropped out. Now, I've, I've continued the research. Right. I've got the memos for Ratha Khan and all the others. And when uh, uh, in 1980, Roddenberry thought that he was still going to get to continue. Yes. Uh, and he submitted a story and they rejected it. And suddenly Harv Bennett's brought in. So that will be a book all in itself, which will cover the um, uh, Ratha Khan through uh, Undiscovered Country. Mm about 100 pages on each movie. I've already got all the memos, and I've been talking to people about it for years, so I can do if If the next one sells okay, right. I will do that. 
But that also comes to the point where, you know, the business is starting to change. It was the first couple of seasons where you have memos and next gen, and then that goes away with computers and email. That's right. Memos start to go away. So it's like, do you well, thank feel- thank God I'd be doing a book on each movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, uh, you know- was... yeah. I, I have enough memos to clearly see what was going on, and I was able to talk to enough of the participants right. to be able to show- uh, the drama, and there's pretty dramatic uh, memos between uh, that Roddenberry was sending in over even Wrath of Khan, uh, but the other oh, movies yeah. as well. There's some great he was really upset uh, that they were going to kill Spock. He was even more upset, or equally upset, that they were going to blow up the Enterprise right. yep. in the, in the yep. third movie. And he fought against these things, tooth and nail. Uh, so he maybe, uh, maybe next time you come, bring some of those memos and we'll read them. Well, I was sure. going to say anybody who doubts you can read the Gene memos. Gene's insight into we've, we've done it before. Uh, Gene, <laughs> Gene, you know Gene's value. You re, all you have to do is read his memos on Star Trek Three to see Gene got Star Trek. Gene, you know, I mean, Gene had such uh, his memos to Harvey, and he starts off very polite, right. and by the end, he's you know really you know going. But he's he's not wrong. Right. You know, he's not wrong, and I think for the most part. 80% of what Gene is saying would have made it a better movie. Yeah. Yeah, they stopped listening to him. They stopped listening to him. Well, as the studio said. I'm afraid people are going to have to stop listening now. To us, yeah. Because <laughs> so, look, tell well, us. I just gave you a good exit there. Yeah, so, it was we're, great. We're, so, so, volume five is coming out when? Um, May. Hopefully. Right. No, I'm, I'm in the, You're on track. I'm in, You're I'm in the home in, stretch. Totally, totally. I had, I had to take a break. I had to take a break. So this May, people can get volume five of this uh, ever-expanding series of uh, these are the voyages. And, I, and if enough of you buy it, I'll do the other ones we're talking <laughs> about. If not, uh, I'll let somebody else do them. And volume one to four are, are available now and the audio book of season one. So these aren't available in bookstores. Where can people get them? Uh, well, they are, but there aren't any bookstores anymore. Ah. Yeah, you can get them at Barnes & Noble, but... but uh, uh, you can get them on Amazon. Anything you can get anything right. on yeah, Amazon. Yeah. Okay, but they got enough money, so I always say get them directly from, from the, the publisher. publisher these, you'll sign and, and you can do, the easy one to remember. Forget their name. Just type in these are the voyages books dot com. Mm. It'll take you to the website because those come signed. They can be inscribed, and I'll get some of the money. Great. Where if you buy it through Amazon, <laughs> uh, hey. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, look, Mark, we appreciate you joining us. We hope you'll, you'll come back when the new book comes out. Yeah. And uh, and some memos. I love that idea. Yeah, we'll bring, bring some memos with you, and uh, we'll chat, We'll get Gene down here to talk about them. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, thanks, everyone. And thank you, Ashley, for joining us. Uh, Darren, as always, for joining us for Inglorious Trexperts. If you're a fan of the podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts, like the 430 movie, every Friday, and the Rebel and the Rogue, a Star Wars podcast every Tuesday, and the upcoming Two on Who, a Doctor Who podcast. Also, Best Movies Never Made every other Monday. You can also watch our video podcast and all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts on Electric Now, available on the Distro TV, Zumo, and Stir TV app, as well as the upcoming Electric Now app. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please rate us five stars. Like, there are five books in his series? <laughs> five stars. Not four, not bloody three, not two, five. And we thank you for all your support. And, of course, a very special thanks. Speaking of supportive, uh, our great sound engineer, Mr. Bill Ritter. Woo! And everyone here at Electric Surge Network and producers Natalie Miscali. And, of course, Dean Devlin, without whom this show would not be possible. Until next week, keep on trekking and gloriously, of course. Engage.
This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.